This is Elder Peter Ristow, and welcome to our October 2nd, 2022 worship service at Warrington Bible Fellowship. Today's sermon is given by Pastor Zach Ritz of Veritas Church, and it's titled Salt and Light, where he asks the question, what did Jesus say about Christians engaging in the culture? As we join the service in progress, I pray that it will be a blessing to you in every way. So good to be with you here this morning. It always is such an honor and privilege uh, to preach the word to you and to share the pulpit with such a faithful man of God, such as John Kavakis, who year after year, week after week, has preached the word of God to you from this pulpit. Praise God for that. Praise God there's a place that you can come and you can gather to hear the word of the Lord, which sadly so many churches today are not preaching. And so I am so thankful for Warrington Bible Fellowship. I'm so thankful for Pastor John Kavakis and the encouragement that he is to me, a young pastor just getting started with our young church. Uh, so thank you for your hospitality always, uh, but thank you also for the encouragement it is to see people who are still faithful to want to come and to hear the word of God. Hey, this morning, uh, I wanna tell you, after uh, Carrie and I, my wife Carrie, got married, we're from Maryland originally, but then we drove cross country to Spokane, Washington. Everyone ever been to Spokane, Washington? Okay, yeah, all right. So you, you know the drive, or maybe you flew. All right, uh, but yeah, we, we drove out to Spokane, Washington so that I could go to Bible college. Uh, and at that time, we rented, didn't have any children, so we, we rented a one-bedroom apartment and get this, it was under $500 a month, right? Yeah, and so I bet all of you remember when apartments were maybe even cheaper than that, right? Uh, but that was good. We were happy about a less than $500 a month, especially as newlyweds. Uh, then we went to seminary, and uh, this time a two-bedroom. We had uh, Benaya at this point and would soon have Judah. And then it was a two-bedroom uh, apartment on seminary campus, and man, it was more than twice that amount. Okay, I don't know if that's just the location, being in New England, uh, or, or what that was, or just the times were changing. Then we rented a two-story townhouse, so started to grow, get bigger, in North Carolina. Uh, and then we had Selah out in Kansas in an apartment. Again, we rented an apartment in Kansas until we bought our house. So seven years later after marriage, it, we finally had the blessing of being homeowners. And man, I was so excited to be a homeowner. I was like, yes, that's right. That's my grass. That's my tree. This is my house, right? This is mine. Carrie's like, we get to paint the walls any color we want, right? So she was excited about that blessing. I was excited about the blessing, or blessing of ripping out old carpet, the blessing right, of being able to cut my own grass, and then the blessing of looking back over it like, yep, I did that. Anybody else do that when you cut the grass? You just look, you're like, yes, look at those lines. Wait, nope, that one's off. Okay, I don't need to, you know, go back over it. Oh, the blessing of being a homeowner. Oh, then came some unexpected blessings of being a homeowner. We also had the blessing of having to repair a roof. Then we had the blessing of not me fixing, but paying someone else to fix some electrical and plumbing issues, right? Then all of a sudden, all these blessings started getting a bit overwhelming. What I realized at that moment was that every blessing that we receive comes with responsibilities. I mean, this is true not only of a homeowner, it's true like if you have a spouse Right? If you have the blessing of a spouse, then comes with a spouse a responsibility before God 
to treat your spouse as God has commanded you to treat them. And then also, if you have the blessing of children, what a great blessing children are to us. But then also comes the responsibility of providing for them and training them and raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All blessings that we receive from God come with responsibilities. Now, uh, last week we were in Matthew chapter 5 at Veritas, so you can turn there now, Matthew chapter 5. And in the first part, verses 1 through 12, these are the Beatitudes, which we are very familiar with. Man, we like those Beatitudes because they are filled full of blessings. Matter of fact, the very last one, Jesus says, and a great reward is waiting in heaven for those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. Yes, even that too is a blessing. Now, so this morning, this week, Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is where we're going to be. Jesus reminds his disciples, he goes right from all those blessings right into a responsibility. He reminds his disciples that these heavenly blessings come with earthly responsibilities, for they have been set apart from the world in order to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. But you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. This new identity that we have as followers of Jesus, this identity as salt and light, just like being a homeowner, a spouse, or a parent, it comes with great responsibility. Now, I didn't have a clue as to what it meant to be a homeowner when I first became one, or even, honestly, a spouse or a parent, for that matter. But I had to learn. I had to learn what it meant, this new title. What did that mean? What did it mean mean by God that now I am a homeowner, a spouse, a, a, a parent? What would God have for me to do? So if Jesus calls us, his followers, salt and light, then we need to figure out what are salt and light called to do. If we are the salt and light of the world, what is our responsibility to the culture and world around us? Have you noticed lately there's a culture war going on? Should we engage in it? If so, how so? Or is it of none of our concern? That is the question that I want us to ask this morning as we're going into this passage of salt and light, Jesus' definition. Now, Richard Niebuhr, he wrote a book entitled Christ and Culture. He wrote this in 1951, and it's continued even to today to be the framework that we have around this discussion, which is the discussion of what what does Christ have to do with the culture? And because we asked that question, the the follow-up question is, or it is the same thing to ask, what does the church to do with culture? What is the relationship between Christ and culture? What's the relationship between the church and the culture around us? Because as goes the head, goes the body. So whatever Jesus thinks about the culture, we need to think. For he is the head of the church. My hands right now are moving, 
right? Because my, ha- my head is telling them to, right? Uh, my, my feet start moving because my head tells it to do. My body goes where my head tells it to go. So too, if Jesus Christ is the head of the church and we are his body, then we must go and go do exactly what he has called us to do because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. So then what, what is Christ's view or relationship with the culture? Now, there are three that uh, Richard Niebuhr gives. And again, you don't need to memorize these. This is just, I think, a helpful framework. What I want you to leave here with is remembering the Bible. So if you don't remember any of these titles, that's totally fine, right? But let's at least get a framework and then let's go back into the scriptures and see which one is right or if we got to write a new one, okay? So the first one would be Christ against culture. Christ against culture. And then Christ of culture and Christ and culture. Let's go to the first one, Christ against culture. This would be the view that Christ is against culture in every way. That, that Christ has his own culture, he is separate from the culture, wants nothing to do with the culture, and we as the church ought to have the same view. Again, that's this, this view, and then we need to hold that up to Scripture and see if that is true. Now, if you would think about who holds this sort of view, you would think of monks, right, in the monastic movement, those who withdraw completely from culture, right? And they go and they live in their monasteries day in and day out. They pray to the Lord, right? And they just live memorizing scripture and just, hey, it's like an eternal Bible study, right? Uh, And for some of us, that sounds wonderful, right? Uh, Maybe even the Amish, right? The Amish. The Amish say, hey, um, look, we, we have our own culture. We have our own clothes. We make our own clothes. We have our own culture. So even the way we dress is not going to be the way the culture dresses. The way we speak is not going to be the way the culture speaks. What we do and how we have our living, right? We're, and again, even this sometimes sounds a little appealing. <laughs> to think about not having a TV. Imagine if you didn't have social media. Imagine if you didn't have a cell phone. Imagine if you didn't have some of those things, right, that cause such anxiety all the time and you were separate from it. What's going on in the culture? I don't know. Right? It is no, no, no concern to us. We are not thinking about that. What we're only thinking about is what we're doing here. Maybe like Warrington Bible Fellowship and Veritas, we can all get together, go buy some land, right, and just worship God together and, and do our own thing. But again, is that what God, would that be faithful to what God has called us to be here on earth? Now, the second one would be Christ of culture, okay? Now, this would be different. Uh, Christ against culture is, you know, no, we oil and water don't mix. We keep these things separate. Christ of culture is to say that Christ is the product of the culture. There, the Christ and culture go so hand in hand that we cannot see any distinction. Those who would hold this position would say things such as Paul wrote in the Bible that homosexuality was a sin because that was what was culturally acceptable at that time. When Paul writes about uh, husband and wife, again, this is not what I'm teaching, this is just what, uh, what they would say, is to say that, no, Paul just wrote uh, that husband and wife and that whole relationship uh, is specifically only because that's what was culturally acceptable at that time. However, in our day, and this is what they would say, in our day, culture has changed. We have progressed. And therefore, what God always does and what Paul would do is just sign off on whatever the culture says. However the culture defines marriage, however the culture defines right, sexuality or gender, that's how we're going to do it. And our job is just to love and affirm whatever the culture wants to do. Again, these are those churches that you cannot recognize the difference between the world and the church. They are so intertwined. They are not separate. You can't tell the difference. 
of the world and the church. Again, is that what the Bible calls us to do? Is is indeed Paul, or Jesus for that matter, worried about upsetting the culture? Or is he just taking all of his cues for morality from the culture? I would argue not. So third, this is the third position, would be Christ and culture. How do these two work together? What is the proper? What things should we be against? What things should we be for? What things are okay and permissible within culture? Is it okay to have uh, music, right, that wasn't made by Christians on your playlist? Right? Do you enjoy listening to some old school rock and roll? Or do you enjoy whatever you enjoy, whatever your thing is, okay? Uh, or food. Can we not eat at a restaurant if it's not Chick-fil-A? Do you see what I mean? Like, like to, to what degree do these things go together, Christ and culture? And then there's three breakup views for uh, distinct ways to view Christ and culture. The first would be a, a synthesis view, okay? Where we're trying to take a little bit from the one and a little bit from the other and put them together. Which is to say, okay, here's things or neutral things within culture. Let me take some of that and also Christ and the church and we'll put them together and we'll blend, we'll blend it. But there's still things that they would be against. The synthesis view would say, no, that's evil, that's sinful, we can't do that, right? No, only the good or only the neutral can be brought in. Now with that view, one why it's distinct from the others is because they don't seek to change anything. What is is what is. Right? So they're not trying to change the culture, they're just picking and choosing from the culture what is permissible and, and, and also neglecting what is not. But it's not an active changing of the culture, okay? That would be the third one. But before we get there, the second, the paradoxical relationship. This is one which uh, really would be like a, well, Niebuhr says it's like a Martin Luther view of two kingdoms. I think actually his view is more transformative than, than we... Uh, we give credit for. Um, but modern day two kingdoms, let me tell you what modern day two kingdoms or paradoxical relationship would be. It would be that we have two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, that we have church, right? That's the kingdom of God. We have Bible study. That's the kingdom of God. We have Sunday school. That's the kingdom of God. We have women's ministry. That's the kingdom of God. We have men's ministry. That's the kingdom of God. But when we go out into the public square, That's the kingdom of man. It's a separate kingdom that just lives in paradox with one another, and one is not to mix with the other. So we're in the world, but when we as Christians go in the world, we go incognito. And no one knows that we're Christian. When you're in Bible study in church, you can say Jesus, God, and sin, and things like that. But when you're in the public square, if you go to public school, or if you go to any public institution, if you go anywhere in business or public, you better not say the name Jesus, God, sin, Bible, or anything like that. No, you've got to turn that off. So you turn on Christian when you're here, and you talk like a Christian, but when you go in the public square, turn it off. You can still believe what you believe, keep it inside, let it rule you, but don't you dare let it out. Have you noticed that in our current culture? So what I'm going to argue for, my favorite, would be the transformative or the, or the transformational relationship with Christ and culture. Christ looks over all the world that he created and says, this is mine. Right? Not just the church, not just Christians, and all of this is mine. Every human being was created by God, and the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Everyone, all of creation, every square inch of the world 
says Abraham Kuyper. Jesus Christ says, mine, mine, mine. So what I would say is that every single week that we would be bold enough not just to speak and act like Christians on Sunday or Bible study, but Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all every day of the week, that we would be bold and proclaim the truth because we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world and that is our responsibility. There is no other option. This is the new identity. We are the salt of the earth. Let's look at now the word of God and see if how these all measure up to all the different ways we could participate in culture, okay? And if you have other views, we can talk about those as well. We can write our own, come up with our own word. But Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. We are the, you, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 13, imagine yourself being on the mountain that day, Sermon on the Mount. Here he goes, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the way our Lord talks. Don't you love it? If salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing, he says. Throw it out. It is useless, good for nothing, and let it be trampled underfoot. That is what our Lord says. Now, we have to think about salt in the ancient times if we're going to understand, well, what does it mean? What did Jesus have in mind for us to be the salt of the earth? Two things salt was used for. Some of us might remember our grandparents or others using this. This is like the, before refrigeration, people, right? There was how do you keep things from decaying and from perishing, right? Salt. Salt was used to keep food from decaying, especially meat. Okay, so there's a preservation aspect of salt. What do we use salt for today? Now that we have refrigerators, thank you, Lord. Uh, but now that we have refrigeration, usually we have a little salt to enhance the flavor, right? We put salt on something when it's a bit bland. It's really not to add a different flavor, but it's to bring out the flavor that's already within, to enhance the flavor of the dish. And so too, we are called to preserve truth and goodness in a world that will go to moral and spiritual decay if we don't. Because the world is good. God looked at all that he had made, and what did he say? He said, it is good. So the world is good, but it is fallen. And in its fallen state, it will always tend towards what? Moral and spiritual decay and death. That is the tendency. That was where we were going before we knew Christ. That is the, that's what's happening in the world. Now, the goodness of creation, which is already present in it, is brought out by the saltiness of Christians. How so? Because we're the ones who understand why the world was made, how the world was made, by whom the world was made, and for what purpose the world was made. All of it to give glory to God. And therefore, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of our Father in heaven. But Christians must tell the world and teach the world so we might bring this goodness and glory upon every human being, man, woman, and child. But what then is to be done with salt which loses its savor, or its, its taste, or its savor, its saltiness? 
How shall its saltiness, Jesus says, be restored? Now that's a rhetorical question. Jesus says it can't, and it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now this presents a problem for some of our chemists in the room. Because salt is a chemical compound of sodium chloride, right? It's stable, which means it doesn't lose its saltiness over time. Uh, For instance, if you have a bag of salt in the back of your cabinet somewhere that maybe you forgot about, but it's back there. If you found it, it would still be salt. It would still be salty. It wouldn't lose its savor. That's because the salt that you have in those bags or in your salt shaker at home. Everyone has probably a salt shaker at home? Yeah, okay. Salt at home. Right, we have salt, and it's still salty. Why? Because it's pure salt. No impurities in it. It is pure sodium chloride. However, in Jesus' days, their primary source of salt came from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has 33.7% salinity, I think. Right, that's salt. And then it's, compare that, if you want to see 33.7, compared to the Mediterranean Sea, it was only 3.5. That's very salty, my friends. Yeah. Okay, so, so th- that, that's like three t- ten times saltier than your average sea is the Dead Sea. However, it usually contained other minerals when they harvested it. Thus, it was impure. And once the salt was leached out, you could be left with what you thought was salt, but it lost its taste. And if it lost its taste, it proves that it was not 100% salt. And if you want salt, and the stuff that you have now looks like salt, but it is not salt, what are you going to do with this saltless salt? Add some salt to it, right? No. No, it's good for nothing. Throw it out. Because it is not salt. If a church loses its saltiness, it proves to not be a church. If the church becomes too contaminated by the world, and if there is no distinction from the church and the world, then that church is in just as much need of salvation as the world. I pray that they will come to know Jesus. Many so-called churches, some entire denominations, have lost their savor. These are those churches which disregard the Word of God, who preach sermons without Bibles, who, who do not preach the gospel, who do not preach salvation. And there are churches who do not preach salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in accordance with the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Just as in Revelation, their lampstands shall be removed. Their witness no longer true because they have become just as lost and blind as the world. Ah, but I also see here an application for those solid, salty believers as well. Those churches who are a bit more pure in their worship of God. Those churches who are more, maybe not 100%, right? But we're up there. Pretty solid Bible-believing churches who preach the Word of God, who hold fast to the Gospel, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, who seek always to grow in their knowledge of God and His Word, deeper into community with other believers, deeper into the Bible through Bible studies. Yes, we are pure salt in everything. 
We pray, God, rid us of our impurities. And yet, brothers and sisters, we remain in the salt shaker. Why, old child of God, would you put salt in a salt shaker? In order to shake it out. In order to use it. We sit here and we watch the news and we scoff and we judge the world. We see decay all around us. And yet it's our fault it is decaying. Why? For God has given us the responsibility of being the salt of the earth. And yet we are just as useless as salt on a humid day. We refuse to leave the shaker. Now, Carrie and I, when we went to Kentucky uh, this summer, we went to a barbecue place. Ooh, it was wonderful. Uh, went, went to a barbecue place. And here, I've never seen it before, okay? Even I'd ask Carrie and wonder why, even though I was starting to put two and two together myself. Uh, but what, what, what it was is a salt shaker had a bunch of rice in it. And I said, with all this rice, some of you from further south, I, I see. Okay, why would you put, or you lived in a time with no air conditioning. Okay, so why, why would you put rice in a salt shaker? Exactly. The rice will take on the moisture from the humidity, right? And it will allow the salt to pass through dry and with ease, right? But the rice, too big, doesn't fit. It doesn't come out of the the shaker. It stays in the shaker. I believe the church thinks it's the rice when the church has been called to be the salt. The church has become so comfortable, so complacent, and so ready and eager to let someone else be the salt. And we act like the rice. We stay in the shaker. We keep our faith to ourselves. And we let someone else be the salt. Someone else's problem. Someone else go do it. Sadly, we often say, let someone who's not a Christian be the salt. Let them, let, let someone who's not a Christian, let them run the education system. Let them run the judicial system. Let them run the healthcare system. Let them run the food industry, media, entertainment, while we simply be a faithful presence like rice in a salt shaker. But we're not called to be the rice, we are called to be the salt. We need Almighty God to wake us up to this reality. We need Him to take hold of His gospel-preaching churches and shake us up a bit by His Spirit until we pour out of our churches. Buildings. So that we as Christians start going into the education system. Reforming it. Or starting a brand new and teaching everyone, hey, this is how... Education is to glorify God. Welcome the world to it. We must be the ones who go into the judicial system and transform it. For that of all places cannot experience moral decay. We need more Christian leaders and Christian politicians who are unashamed to call good that which God calls good. And to call evil that which God calls evil. And when asked, why do you say that it's evil? Why do you say that it's not good? To actually say, because God says so. Because who do I think I am? We need someone bold enough to say, look, I, I don't make up the rules. I don't get to determine what is good and evil. 
Do you all think I get to determine what is good and evil? Do you all think that you individually get to determine what is good and evil? Do you think that all of us, if we got together and all voted, that we could all determine what is good and evil, that that's up to us and that we have the authority to do so? Or does Almighty God have the authority to claim what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, and we must submit to Him? I don't have the authority, you don't have the authority, and we don't have the authority to make those sorts of determinations. Brothers and sisters, we need more than ever not only to be the salt of the earth, but also the light of the world. And Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, I have chosen them to be such. This is amazing. Okay, get this. John 17, 14 through 18, it was read here before we got started. Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. But, verse 15, and please don't miss this one because we really need to hear verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them, my disciples, out of the world. but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart from the world in truth. Your word is truth. May they be set apart by truth. Your word is truth. So then is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to go out and get everyone with the gospel, bring them in, and then all of us huddle up and pray to God, get us out of here. Is that what Jesus is praying? He says, sanctify them, set them apart by truth. So we are supposed to go preach the gospel. And then they do come to church. Everyone right now is set apart from the world right now as we speak. You've been set apart by the gospel in order for what? Beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here. No, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world we've been set apart in order to be sent we've been set apart by truth in order to go preach that truth to the world to be the salt of the earth and light of the world matthew 5 14 through 16 we are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket maybe a lamp lampshade but not a basket you put it on a stand. It gives light to all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. A lamp never is put under a basket. And all those in the house need the lamp in order to see. And it's our job in the world to show the world the way. That's our job. If we see darkness, we got to shine the light. If we see decay, we got to move in. We're the salt. So perhaps we start a school. We've been praying about that at Veritas. Maybe start a school as the, as the light of the world and show them the way education is supposed to glorify God. Perhaps you start a business. Pray about it, right? Maybe you start a business. Maybe you already have. And as the light of the world, to show them how ethical and hardworking and creative a business can be. Perhaps we run for town council. 
or Congress shine some much-needed light into politics. Perhaps we simply show our children and our grandchildren. Perhaps you're the first one in a lineage that follows Christ. Perhaps we just show our children and grandchildren what a godly family and marriage looks like and be a light to them. Perhaps we show our friends the definition of loyalty and love. Whatever our good works may be, the world must see them. They must see them. And, it, Jesus will say later, not for our own glory. We don't just perform in front of them in order for them to cheer about our light and say, whoa, look how pure their salt is. No. We exist in order to shine light into a world, a dark world that needs to know where life is found, to point them to our Father in heaven, to give all glory to Him. Give all glory to Him who sent His Son to save us when we were perishing. He gave us life when we were decaying. He came and now we're being sanctified in truth. When we were lost in utter darkness, Jesus rescued us and welcomed us into His kingdom of light. And now Jesus says, you are the light of the world and salt of the earth. Point them to me. Now this will all happen not at once. It's going to take some learning. I'm not the best homeowner, trust me. But I'm still learning to take care of my home. I'm not the best husband, but I'm learning to love my wife like Christ loves the church. I'm not the greatest father, but I'm trying to teach and model for my children what their heavenly father is like. And all of this, not for my family's sake only, but yes, for them first and foremost, but, but also for you. Also for you, have, have you ever seen a pastor, have you been hurt by a pastor even, who has not kept these things as his priority? Those responsibilities. More is on the line than just my own family if I fail at these responsibilities. You would be affected. Brothers and sisters, more is on the line than your, in your own life. If you likewise, because look, after this, we're all, we're going, and I, and I only know a certain amount of people, right? Just like you, you only know a certain amount of people as you go forth from here as the salt and light in the world. And how you live before them, they're also affected. If you will point them to Jesus, you know truth, and if you keep that all bottled in, how will they know how to be saved? We cannot be incognito Christians any longer. Out of love for our neighbors, we cannot lose our saltiness. We cannot put our lamp under a basket. We cannot just remain in the shaker until Jesus comes back. We've been set apart from the world and blessed by God. And those blessings come with responsibilities. By His grace and by His Spirit, may we not only preserve the world, let's keep it from being bland. Let us pray. Father God, we pray now that you would indeed shake us, Lord, and use us for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're already doing in our life, the way in which, uh, Lord, you have done a renovation work within our souls, the ways in which, God, uh, you have ripped out the decay, the ways in which you have moved in with your spirit, the ways in which you are making and remaking and renewing us into the image of your Son. And Jesus, we now pray that you would 
Equip us with that gospel. Give us boldness in your spirit to go forth into our culture and to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. All for your glory, our Father in heaven. Amen. Almighty one, how wonderful you are. How good and right and just and pure. How magnificent, how majestic. Your name is the sweet offering we make now as we receive the elements of communion, knowing that you are here with us in a very, very special way. Honor yourself, almighty God, and indwelling us as we are sent now from this place to do your good work. Do not let us forget, first and foremost, mighty one, that you own everything, everywhere all the time. Amen. You are sent. Amen. Glory to God. Elder Peter Ristow here again. Thanks for joining us this morning, and we pray that you'll have a great week and join us again next Sunday.